History on the Side podcast, the podcast that takes a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing, but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns, and this is Episode 7, Tales of the Conquistadors, Part 1. In this episode, we will begin a new series that leaves Europe and the old world behind for a few episodes, and takes a look at the new world, and some of the stories of conquest and survival that took place between the indigenous peoples and the arriving European explorers. Before we get too far into this, there are a number of clarifications and distinctions that I would like to make right from the jump. First, one of the difficult things with a topic like this is that we are dealing with a side of the story that was recorded and written down. This is one of those things that makes history tricky as a field of study. An event can happen, but because of the perspective of every single person who witnessed it, there are hundreds of different descriptions of that event. What makes this even more difficult is when you are dealing with a people group like the Spanish and the Mexica, or as we might recognize them, the Aztecs. The culture who writes and records things in a language that persists and continues for a large group of people tends to determine what gets recorded as history. Other factors can influence this writing of history are things like victory on the battlefield, geographic locations, or the ability to adapt to changing influences in the world around them. But no matter the story, there is always another point of view. So my plan is to do my best to tell both sides of the story as best as I can. Obi-Wan Kenobi was right to say that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. Secondly, I will admit right up front that some of the terminology that you will hear in this episode and then the following episodes is a little bit problematic. The first-hand Spanish account that I'll be pulling from the majority of the time is the account by Bernal Diaz del Castillo, called The Conquest of New Spain. In that account, Diaz refers to the indigenous peoples as Indians. He makes a few distinctions now and then, but for the most part he uses the one label. Now there could be a number of different reasons for this, from the language barrier to the unwillingness or even inability to differentiate between the people groups. But the term Indian is problematic. As is commonly stated, the label comes from Christopher Columbus's inaccurate assumption that he had reached India in 1492 when he sailed the ocean blue. One of the problems with the classification is that it blurs the lines between separate indigenous entities essentially lumping various and unique cultures like the Maya and the Aztec with with other unique cultures such as the Cherokee or the Iroquois. Even if those groups were aware of each other, it is highly unlikely that they would have regarded themselves as equal to one another. For both the Spanish and the Aztecs, Much of the motivations for their actions comes from religion. For the Spanish, it was Catholicism. Especially when you read Bernal Diaz's account, there seems to be an emphasis on trying to convert the native peoples to Christianity. For the indigenous peoples, they have their own native gods and goddesses with with names that I will most definitely end up mispronouncing. Names like Tlaloc, the god of rain, Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent, or Huitzilopochtli, the god of war, the sun, and human sacrifice and, yes, human sacrifice. The people of Mesoamerica were notorious for it, with the Aztecs in particular believing that offerings of humans helped the sun to rise each day and thus prevented the world from ending. I'll give a warning before going into any details, but I wanted to throw that out there so you're not surprised. Finally, we're going to see in Bernal Diaz's account how the use of advanced technology played a crucial role in the conquest of Mexico. We will see how matchlock guns, cannons, and horses played pivotal roles in the campaigns against the indigenous peoples. So now that that's all taken care of, let's get on with our story. 
As was stated earlier, and as we all know from elementary school, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Hoping to find a water passage to India, he instead discovered a whole new world, shining, shimmering, splendid. A whole new world filled with lots and lots of new, exciting, and weird things that had never before been seen in Europe or the Old World. Things like tomatoes, potatoes, chocolate, pineapples, and pumpkins were completely foreign to European taste buds. Nowadays, some of those foods are so tied to the cuisines of European cultures that I bet some of you went to fact-check me just now. First of all, good, I hope you do fact-check me. But second of all, think about that for a second. Without Columbus, there would be no pizza as we know it today. There would be no sweetened chocolate bars, french fries, or pumpkin spice lattes. There would be no debate about whether or not to put pineapples on your pizza. And by the way, if you don't like pineapples on your pizza, then give it to me, because I think it's delicious. Anyway, the arrival of Columbus was soon followed by the beginnings of the Spanish Empire and the New World, also known as New Spain. At its peak, New Spain covered a massive amount of territory, stretching from the northern parts of South America, across the Caribbean Sea and all of those islands, up Central America, into the western regions of the United States and beyond to Canada, and east into Florida. Spain's influence in the New World was enormous, and much of what would happen in subsequent years was shaped by these conquistadors. If social media had been invented, they would be the ones posting all the pictures and videos of all the new things they found, foods they ate, and the selfies they took with the people they met. Oh, and all the gold that they were getting. Lots and lots of shiny, shiny gold. By the time of our story, though, that was mostly in the future. Our story takes place in the early 1510s and is told to us in the book The True History of the Conquest of Mexico, written by a conquistador named Bernal Diaz del Castillo. Diaz served as a conquistador on several expeditions to Central America. We will look at three of them over the course of the next few episodes. They are the Cordoba Expedition in 1517, the Grijalva Expedition in 1518, and the most famous one in 1519 with the Cortez Expedition. That last one with Cortez is the most famous because, spoiler, during that trip, the Spanish would end up conquering the Aztecs. Diaz was right there the whole time. Now, understandably, Cortez is not very popular in present-day Mexico. When you lead the expedition that destroys the culture and way of life of the indigenous population, that's to be expected. But regardless of how the man is thought of today, Bernal Diaz at least, seems to have held him in some high regard. He describes Cortez as a very spirited and valorous captain. But before we get too deep into Cortez and the later expeditions, we have to talk about our source guy, Bernal Diaz, and the first two expeditions he went on. Diaz was from the city of Medina del Campo in northern Spain. His father was a city councilor, which gave his family a measure of prominence. In 1514, he left home to join Pedro Arias de Avila, who had just been made a governor in the New World. Diaz was a young soldier on this first voyage. Eventually, he made his way to the newly conquered island of Cuba, where a man named Diego Velazquez had just been made governor. Now, Diego Velazquez was an important man who will play a large role in this and another story that I have planned for the podcast. But for now, you should know that he was a big deal in the Spanish colonies. Anyway, back to Bernal Diaz. While in Cuba, Diaz joins an expedition under the command of Francisco Hernandez de Cordoba, a wealthy landowner in Cuba. This expedition departed from Cuba with 110 soldiers, as well as some other settlers from, from Cuba. 
It is interesting to note here that one of the descriptors that Diaz uses when describing the people of this expedition is that the people who came from Cuba were, quote, without any Indians, end quote, and that Cordoba was not only a person of great wealth, but also a man who possessed great numbers of Indians in Cuba. Here we see one of the great tragedies that took place during this time period, the beginning of European slavery in the New World. At this time, it's clear that a man's status was found in not only their actual monetary wealth, but also the numbers of Indians they possessed, in a word, slavery. Diaz tells us that when the Cordoba expedition needed an additional ship, Diego Velasquez offered to provide one if Diaz and his fellow explorers would go to some nearby islands and, quote, bring him thence three cargoes of Indians whom he wanted for slaves. This he would consider as payment for the vessel, end quote. Diaz continues, saying, quote, We were, however, fully aware that it was an act of injustice which Diego Velasquez thus required at our hands, and gave him for answer, that neither God nor the king had commanded us to turn free peoples into slaves. End quote. It is important to note that while the beginnings of slavery in the New World were starting to crop up, it would be misleading to believe that every single Spaniard felt that the native population should be enslaved. Historian Andres Resendez, whose work we will discuss in a future episode that I'm really looking forward to, tells us of Friar Bartolomé de las Casas, who, though he took part in the conquest of Cuba and was given some natives as slaves, had a change of heart and worked tirelessly to preserve the rights and freedoms of the native population later in his life. Back to Diaz, whose expedition has refused to exchange natives for a ship. Velasquez eventually relents and essentially gives them a ship, and the Cordoba expedition leaves for the Central American mainland on February 8, 1517. Pushing through rough seas and a terrible storm, the Cordoba expedition reached the mainland 21 days later, after almost a month at sea. We are told that about six miles inland, there was a native town which the Spaniards named Gran Cairo. Now, Gran Cairo serves as one of the first real indigenous cities that the Spaniards came across, and cities in the European sense of the word cities. Up until then, it was just scattered villages here and there along the coast. Grand Cairo had more permanent buildings and was a large urbanish population center, larger than anything the Europeans had seen in the Caribbean islands to that point. It spoke to a level of sophistication that caused all sorts of speculation to pop up among the Europeans. When news of this city reached Cuba, Spanish imaginations conjured up ideas such as the indigenous peoples being the Gentiles of the Bible, or that they were Jews exiled from Jerusalem by Titus and Vespasian. Anyway, on March 5, 1517, as the Spanish were looking for a good place to anchor their boats near Gran Cairo, five canoes full of natives rowed out to the Spanish ships. The Spanish, thinking that this would be a good time to make friends, invited them aboard using hand signs to show they wanted to be friends. The problem was that the two groups couldn't communicate well with each other. Despite this handicap, Diaz tells us that about 30 of the indigenous peoples climbed aboard the main ship to hang out and eat the bread and bacon that the Spanish gave them. The Spanish gave each of the natives a necklace of green glass beads, and after looking around the ship for a bit, the natives went back to their village, but not before signing their promise to return the next day to help the Spanish come on shore. Unbeknownst to the expeditioners, the, this first encounter would be one of the few peaceful ones that they would have with the natives on this expedition. The following day, the natives returned, and their chief encouraged the explorers to come with him to his village. 
The Spaniards went ashore in some of their smaller boats and cautiously began to follow the chief up to the village. So far, so good. In their procession, the Spaniards had some crossbowmen and a few soldiers with matchlock guns, basically an early firearm similar to a musket. As I said, the Spanish were being cautious, and in this instance, their spidey sense was right. Diaz tells us that as they followed the chief into some rocky areas, the chief gave a signal and outrushed what Diaz calls great numbers of native warriors behind a flurry of arrows. Fifteen Spaniards immediately went down wounded. After the initial arrow volley, the native warriors engaged the Spaniards in hand-to-hand -hand combat while wielding shields, bows, slings, and big two-handed lances. Diaz tells us that the natives, quote, began to feel the sharp edge of our swords and saw what destruction our crossbows and matchlocks made upon them, they speedily began to give way. Fifteen of their number lay dead on the field, end quote. The natives disappeared, and the Spanish regrouped and came upon some temples nearby. Inside, the Europeans discovered many idols and other religious artifacts, which they promptly seized. Diaz describes the statues as looking like devils, women, crowns, fish, and ducks. He is also quick to note that the gold that was used for some of the statues was an inferior kind of gold. Finally, Diaz ends this particular story by stating that after the Spanish captured two of the natives of the village, the soldiers returned back to their boats and sailed away. Thirteen Spaniards were wounded, while fifteen natives lay dead. Now, they are little, but there are a few things that occurred in this one encounter that I want to highlight. First, travel between the islands and the mainland was a slow process, at least in the beginning. The fact that it took the Cordoba expedition the better part of a month to make the crossing speaks to the amount of uncertainty the Spanish had about these waters. Numerous times throughout his narrative, Diaz will mention that the pilots of the Spanish ships will insist that the islands they come upon are part of the continent, and vice versa. They really are sailing blind here. Second, the sneak attack by the natives shows a certain level of military sophistication and skill. The warriors showed proficiency in a number of different weapons, and were skilled enough to take trained Spanish soldiers out of the fight immediately. Third, as demonstrated with the idols in the temple, the Spanish were here to explore, yes, but also to make money, and lots of it. That much is evident in the description of the gold being an, of an inferior quality. If it was golden, the Spanish wanted it. Fourth, natives seem to hold green glass beads in high regard, as this won't be the last time we see them being used for trade. Lastly, think back to the meal that the Spanish gave to the natives, bread and bacon. Let's imagine also that Diaz and his friends were the first Europeans that this particular band of natives had ever encountered. If that were true, then that meal was the first time that the native peoples of this village had ever eaten bacon. Pigs and other bacon-producing animals are not native to the Americas. It was only with the coming of the Europeans that one of my favorite foods was introduced to the Western Hemisphere. Anyway, before I get too hungry, let's move on. After this near fiasco, the Spanish regrouped and moved on up the coast until they came to an area the natives called Campeche. There they were able to refill their water supplies and some other provisions. While they were here, they came upon a village of what seemed to be friendly natives who showed them their temples. Diaz describes the scene by writing, quote, These were the temples, the walls of which were covered with figures representing snakes and all manner of gods. Round about a species of altar 
we perceived several fresh spots of blood. On some of the idols there were figures like crosses, while other paintings representing groups of Indians. All this astonished us greatly, as we had neither seen nor heard of such things before. It appeared to us that the inhabitants had just been sacrificing some Indians to their gods, to obtain from them some power to overcome us." Ominous, isn't it? What follows definitely feels like it should come from a horror movie. The inhabitants of the village made every show of friendship, smiling at the Spaniards, while gradually bringing more people in to see the new arrivals. But the Spanish weren't buying it. Diaz makes it clear that their spidey sense was going crazy, and sure enough, it turns out that once again, it was right. Some of the natives approached the Spaniards. They were wearing tattered cloaks and carrying bundles of sticks that they placed on the ground. Then two groups of armed natives approached and stood with weapons ready in front of the Spaniards. At that moment, Diaz tells us, ten native priests came running out of another nearby temple, quote, all dressed in long white robes, while the thick hair of their heads was so entangled and clotted with blood that it would have been an impossibility to have combed it or put it in order without cutting it off. End quote. These priests carried glowing clay pots filled with resins with which they perfumed the Spaniards. Diaz doesn't say this, but I imagine that those priests had performed the sacrifices mentioned before, possibly even right before the Spanish got there. This bizarre situation almost turned deadly when the priests signed to the Spanish that the bundles of sticks in front of them were going to be lit, and the Spanish had better be gone before the bundles were done burning, or the natives would kill every single one of them. As the priests were speaking, the bundles were in fact lit. Diaz tells us that none of the natives said anything else, but instead stood silently staring at the Europeans. More natives slowly continued to gather. The only sounds were drums beating and some small war pipes and shells being blown. No one moved. The smoke from the bundles of sticks was slowly rising into the air. Even though Diaz doesn't actually phrase it like this, the Spanish were understandably freaked the heck out and beat a hasty retreat. In his narrative, Diaz tries to make it seem as if it was a nice orderly retreat back to the boats, but I find that a little hard to believe. I'd be running as fast as I could. Reading this encounter feels like the stuff of a horror movie. Strange blood-covered temples and priests, one of the first of many encounters with human sacrifice, armed warriors guaranteeing your death. Yeah, there's no way that was an orderly retreat. Fortunately for the Spanish, they were able to return to their vessels before the attack came. Continuing on, the Spanish soon found themselves yet again short of water and searched for another place to anchor. They landed at a place called either Potonchen or Champaton and set about refilling their water supplies. Before they could finish this essential task, Diaz states that they were set upon by a great number of natives from the nearby village. Here we go again. Diaz says, quote, They had all their cotton cuirasses on, which reached to their knees, and were armed with bows, lances, shields, and swords. The latter were shaped like our broadswords and are wielded with both hands. They also had slings and stones, their bunches of feathers on, and their whole bodies painted with white, brown, and black colors. They approached us in profound silence, as if they came with the most peaceable intentions, and inquired of us by signs if we had come from the rising sun, thereby pronouncing the same words which the inhabitants of St. Lazaro had used, namely, Castellan, Castellan. 
we told them, likewise by signs, that we indeed came from the rising of the sun. End quote. Once again, the Spanish spidey sense was going off. Something just didn't quite feel right. Over the night, the Europeans wisely set guards to watch the surrounding area while others finished the task of getting water. Sure enough, the Spanish found themselves surrounded by the natives who were slowly gathering, whooping and crying out with loud yells in the night. There was no mistaking it this time. An attack was coming, probably with the dawn. It must have been terrifying. The Europeans were in a dilemma. If they tried to retreat, they would have to leave behind barrels of precious water. If they tried to retreat with the water, they would be exposing themselves to even more danger. In this case, it was decided that the least dangerous thing would be to initiate the attack against an enemy that outnumbered them 30 to 1 at their best estimate. Then dawn broke. I would imagine that the sight that met the Spanish in the early morning hours made their hearts sink. More natives had come in the night, and even more were approaching as the sun rose in the sky. Drums announced more groups on the way, and then the attack came. Showers of arrows, stones, and lances rose in the sky and fell back down on the Spanish forces. According to Diaz, 80 Spaniards were immediately wounded. The natives then rushed forward and engaged in a ferocious hand-to-hand -hand battle. The Spanish fought back, firing their muskets and crossbows. Finally, the natives were pushed back enough that the Spanish had some breathing room, but not enough to keep their captain safe. With cries of Al Calachoni, which Diaz claims means kill the chief, the natives were able to wound Hernandez de Cordoba, the captain of the expedition. Diaz says that he was hit with at least 12 different arrows and Diaz himself was hit with at least three. Eventually, though, the Spanish were forced to retreat without the water barrels. The natives had the advantages of being supplied with food and water, as well as a plentiful supply of fresh troops to continue the attack. Here's Diaz again. Quote, We soon concluded that all of our courageous fighting would not advance us a step. The whole of us were wounded, many shot through the neck, and more than 50 of our men were killed. In this critical situation, we determined to cut our way manfully through the enemy's ranks and make for the boats, which fortunately lay on the coast near at hand. We therefore firmly closed our ranks and broke through the enemy." Quote. Making a break for the boats, the Spanish were in such a rush to get to safety that they ended up capsizing them and having to swim for it. All the while, they were pursued by the natives in canoes, who continued to relentlessly pr press the attack. The entire battle only lasted a little longer than half an hour, but left such an impression on the Spanish that they called the place Bahia de Mala Pelea, which Diaz says means the Bay of the Disastrous Engagement, and Google Translate says means Bad Fight Bay. I'm inclined to go with Diaz's translation since the Google version sounds like a Super Mario game level. According to Diaz, only a single soldier named Barrio had escaped without a scratch. Safe for the moment, the wounded and tired expeditioners decided that it was time to head back to Cuba. Unfortunately, they had been forced to leave behind the precious water barrels, which meant that they were soon extremely thirsty. Unable to find any water at all and eager to get back to friendly Spanish territory, they set sail for Florida, which would help with their return to Cuba. Four days later, they had successfully crossed the Gulf of Mexico and sighted the Florida coast. The pilot of the ship, had been here with the Ponce de Leon expedition ten years before, 
and remembered well the hostile natives that lived here. The Spanish once again took precautions, but hurried to the land to dig wells. Fortunately for them, they found sweet, fresh water and set about filling their casks and barrels and washing the bandages of the wounded. For an hour, the overjoyed Spanish adventurers rejoiced and were on the verge of getting back on the ships with their high-quality H2O when disaster struck. One of the sentinels raced back to the main group, screaming that large numbers of natives were approaching on land and by sea. The natives were hot on the sentinels' heels and immediately attacked. Wounding a handful of the Spanish almost immediately, the natives were quickly repulsed thanks to well-aimed musket shots. After the short battle, the survivors asked the lone sentinel what had happened to the other sentinel, the guy named Barrio, who had escaped from the previous battle unscathed. Barrio had apparently gone off by himself with an axe in order to go cut down a palm tree, which I'm sure seemed like a good idea at the time. The other sentinel heard Barrio cry out in Spanish, which caused him to run back to the main group. After hearing this account, the main group decided to try and find him, retracing the path that the attacking natives had just come from. They found the palm tree that Barrio had wanted to cut, but there were no bloodstains or anything else that would give them a clue as to what happened to their compatriot. Diaz says they searched for about 15 minutes, calling out his name, before returning to their boats. To my knowledge, Barrio was never seen again. The arrival of fresh water on the boat was a source of great rejoicing. Diaz claims that one man drank so much water that he instantly swelled up and died, which is probably the most cartoonish death I've ever read in a primary source so far. The group then made their way back to Cuba, praising God for delivering them safely back to the island. The Cordoba expedition was finally over. Ill-fated and dangerous, the gold that the adventurers brought back with them was enough to convince others to try their hands at exploring the new continent. Cordoba himself died soon after returning to Cuba, but Bernal Diaz, our main friend and source in this story, will return to the mainland in a 1518 expedition under Juan de Grijalva, and then again later in 1519 on the famous Hernán Cortés expedition. The Cortés expedition will have to wait for a later episode, however, and we must focus for a while on the Grijalva mission. Bernal Diaz states that the accounts from the Cordoba expedition convinced the Spaniards in Cuba of vast amounts of wealth that could be found on the mainland. Very quickly, according to Diaz, 220 men assembled to seek their fortune. Diego Velasquez, the governor of the island, sent instructions to this new group of adventurers that they were to trade for as much gold and silver as they could get, and to settle colonies if they felt like it. It was really all about the money. On April 5th, 1518, the expedition set sail, and not long after arrived in the area known as Champaton, the very site where the Spanish had to abandon their water supplies after a fierce battle with the natives the year before. Diaz notes that the inhabitants had not forgotten the victory of the year before, and gathered to meet this new Spanish group just like they did the first group. Well-armed, wearing body paint, banging drums, and just waiting for the Spanish to land so they could again smack them around. But while the natives had not forgotten the battle of the year before, neither had the Spanish. This time, they were well armed with matchlock guns, crossbows, and a few falconets. This new Spanish weapon was a four-foot-long cannon that could fire a one-pound cannonball almost a mile. The second battle of Champaton was on. As the Spanish tried to land, the natives fired volleys of arrows, wounding many Spaniards. However, upon reaching the shore, the Spanish gave the natives what Diaz describes 
as an evil return with their matchlocks and sabers. The Spanish were also better armored this time around, having put on some cotton cuirasses to help protect themselves. In spite of this, though, casualties were still high. Juan de Grijalva, the commander, took three arrows and lost two of his teeth. At least 60 Spaniards were wounded in this encounter. Eventually, though, the Spanish were able to bring in some reinforcements, which caused the natives to flee the battlefield. The Spanish captured three natives, but Grijalva set them free and asked them to go and get the local chief so that they could be friends. The three natives leave with gifts of green glass beads and other trinkets, but do not return. After staying there for four days, the Spanish left as well and continued up the coast until they came to a place that Diaz calls Terminus Bay. Here in Terminus Bay, Diaz states that the Spanish found stone temples full of wooden and clay idols in the shapes of women, serpents, and other wild animals. It was soon guessed that the temples were meant to be used by indigenous hunters and merchants passing through. Diaz claims that the greyhound that accompanied this expedition had so much fun chasing rabbits and deer that he decided to stay and ran away into the trees as the Spanish were getting back into their boats. Don't worry, though, because the Cortez expedition would revisit the area about a year later and would find the dog again, plump and happy. I mention this particular spot because it illustrates yet another level of sophistication that could be found among the indigenous peoples of the area. Here in Terminus Bay is an example of a religious network that was large enough that remote places of worship were deemed necessary. This combined with the fact that Diaz and the company guess at the existence of traveling merchants is evidence of a large-scale economic system that speaks to the interconnectedness between indigenous towns and cities in the area and beyond. Any notions that these people were little more than unsophisticated barbarians or soulless, human-looking animals are simply ignoring the evidence to the contrary. It may not have looked like what could be found in Europe in the Old World, but the peoples of the New World had their own economies, religions, and as we will see, communication networks that operated over huge portions of Central America and beyond. Moving on. The Spanish pressed on to what was called the Tabasco River. Promptly renaming it the Grijalva River, the Spanish began to hear the sound of trees falling in the distance. The natives of the area were chopping down those trees in order to build barricades against the Spanish. Disembarking, the Spanish soldiers were quickly approached by what Diaz says was about 50 canoes worth of Indians. It certainly looked like yet another battle was about to begin. Here's what Diaz says about it. Quote, Seeing how ready they were for action, we were just upon the point of firing off our great guns and giving them a volley of musket shots when it entered our minds, through merciful providence, that we ought first to try if we could not gain their friendship. End quote. Hey, there's an idea. Try the peaceful approach. Through their interpreters, the Spanish were able to tell the natives that they meant them no harm and only wanted to talk to them and give them presents. Four canoes containing about 30 natives approached the Spanish forces and were greeted with necklaces of blue beads, small mirrors, and green corals, which the natives seemed to really like. The Spanish then make their pitch. Why, yes, we do come from a distant country and are subjects of the King Charles V, who you should totally submit to as your master. Oh, and old King Charles would think it would be awesome if you could give us some birds since, you know, we gave you those cool necklaces. What do you say? The native response is hilariously appropriate. They would provide the Spanish with the food they needed, but Diaz quotes them saying, quote, 
For the rest they already had a master, and could not help feeling astonished that we, who had but just arrived and knew nothing of them, should that instant wish to impose a master on them. We had better consider a bit before we commenced war with them, as we had with those at Patanchin, that already all the warriors of the country had been ordered out against us." End quote. Now, peace was achieved in this encounter. Food and gold were provided to the Spanish, though Diaz complains that the gold was, again, of inferior quality. The natives of this area also gave the Europeans some clothes, saying that they had no more gold to give, but if the Spanish went west, they would find a country full of it. But back up a minute. Who was this master that the natives already served? What was this Mexico they kept talking about? The answer is Montezuma, or, as he is known today, Montezuma. Montezuma was the emperor of Mexico at this time, and Diaz describes him in this initial introduction as a man whose power was, quote, so great that he would gladly have extended it to places where it was impossible, and he wished to know things he could never learn, end quote. Diaz also says that Montezuma had been aware and followed the progress of the previous Cordoba expedition and the current one under Grijalva. He also knew that the Spanish would gladly trade just about anything if it meant they would get some gold. Remember that information and communications network I mentioned earlier? Montezuma would now use it to issue orders that his people should exchange their gold with the Spanish to get green glass beads. He also ordered his people to gather as much information about these Europeans as he could. This was done, Diaz says, because of an ancient tradition in the country which, quote, spoke of a people that would come from the rising of the sun who would at some future period get the dominion of the country, end quote. Now, this one little tidbit stems from a myth about Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent of Aztec myth, who is responsible for the air, wind, and learning. According to author Donna Rosenberg in her book World Mythology, Quetzalcoatl may be a similar figure as King Arthur, straddling the line between mythology and actual fact. Rosenberg states that Quetzalcoatl may have, at one point in the distant past, been a great king or leader whose exploits earned him a place in the mythology of the area. In some versions of his myth, Quetzalcoatl is supposed to have given humans the gifts of food, wine, music, self-confidence, and a kind of pride in their country. During the time of the Spanish incursions into the land, a tradition existed that linked the feathered serpent with the Spanish. According to the Quetzalcoatl myth, the feathered serpent had been temporarily seduced to the dark side by Tetzalipuca, a god of judgment, night, deceit, sorcery, and the earth itself. The two deities were sometimes at odds with each other, and in this particular myth, Tetzalipuca got Quetzalcoatl to do some shameful things, which caused the feathered serpent to lose confidence in his ability to lead his people, the Toltecs, the predecessors of the Aztecs. Tetzalipuca then set about destroying Quetzalcoatl's people with a series of disguises, which in turn forces the disgraced Quetzalcoatl to go on a journey of penance. Quetzalcoatl, in his human form, heads east where he is forced into progressively giving up his treasures, power, his ability to cut stones, and even his ability to write. He doesn't mind, though. The sun has called him east, and to the east he must go. Soon Quetzalcoatl reaches the sea, puts on his feathered cloak and turquoise mask, and sails east into the rising sun on a raft made of snakes. Some brave souls who witnessed all of this heard Quetzalcoatl exclaim, 
Some day I will return to my people and my land. He continued east into the heat of the rising sun, which burned his body and turned it to ash. Those ashes were then transformed into beautiful birds and carried Quetzalcoatl's heart into the heavens, which became the planet we call Venus. Ever since, the Toltecs, and then the later Aztecs, would look out for the return of their feathered god. When the Spanish suddenly appeared coming from the east, the similarities to Quetzalcoatl's mythic return seemed to have been just enough to convince Montezuma to at least try to appease the Spanish. According to Diaz, Quetzalcoatl was not the only deity that the Spanish reminded the ruler of, but more on that in a later episode. With Montezuma's instructions in mind, it is not hard to imagine why the Spanish would have thought that the land was filled with gold. The Spanish stayed in this area for six days, trading the whole time. When the gold ran out, they moved on, and eventually came to the island they named Isla Blanca. Nearby, another island lay. Upon exploring it, the Spanish stumbled across two houses, which could be reached by climbing a set of stairs. At the top of the stairs, we are told, lay an altar surrounded by several idols. Also present were the pieces of the bodies of five natives who had been sacrificed to those idols the previous night. Blood was everywhere. Diaz claims that the Spanish looked at all of this in utter astonishment, but you have to wonder if there was any revulsion, shock, or disgust mixed in. Leaving this place, the Spanish pushed on to a harbor that they named San Juan de Calua, where things didn't get much better. Upon disembarking, the Spanish found another temple. At this one, though, they learned how the sacrifices were performed and to whom. Now a warning here. What I'm about to tell you is a quote from Diaz that describes in pretty gory detail the sacrificial procedure. If you don't like such things, you may want to fast forward a little bit. Again, if you don't want to hear the gory details, fast forward a little bit. Diaz says, quote, Here we found a temple on which stood the great and abominable-looking god Tetzcalipuca, surrounded by four Indians, dressed in wide black cloaks and with flying hair, in the same way as our canons or Dominicans wear it. These were priests who had that very day sacrificed two boys, whose bodies they had ripped up, and then offered their bleeding hearts to the horrible idol. They were going to perfume us in the same way they had done their gods, and though it smelt like our incense, we would not suffer them. So shocked were we at the sight of the two boys whom they had recently murdered and disgusted with their abominations. End quote. And with that grossness, we will end this episode of the History on the Side podcast. As always, thank you so much to everyone who has listened and downloaded the show. Keep it up, and don't forget to tell your friends, co-workers, distant relations, and random people about the podcast. In case they ask, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, or suggestions, you can get in touch with me by emailing historyontheside at gmail.com or through Facebook and Instagram. Just search History on the Side and enjoy. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time for Tales of the Conquistadors, Part 2.